Welcome to Crushing Disappointment. I'm Matt Elliott, and this is going to be a monthly podcast in which I'm going to sit down with my guest and chat about their crush. Um, hopefully it'll be a formative crush, one that had an impact on them, but the definition of crush is going to be quite loose, so it's whatever people feel like that means to them. In this particular episode, I'm going to chat to my friend Anna about her crush on Jonathan Rhys Myers, particularly his portrayal of Steerpike in the BBC adaptation of Gormenghast. Um, when I sat down with Anna, I didn't introduce her or even ask how she was, <laughs> so the interview does just start with the first question. But to initiate it, I'm going to crush this bottle so that I don't have any issues of using copyrighted music. When was the first time that you remember seeing John from Reese Myers? Oh, John from Reese Myers specifically? I think my first memory of it is going to um, some family friends, went to the house, and I know now that they, they lived in Dulwich at the time, <laughs> it seemed like Narnia, I wasn't really sure where it was. And it was around Christmas time, I believe, and I must have been, let's go with seven, and we, uh, we were at theirs having dinner, and then I ventured into their lounge, and I remember walking in and seeing this thing on the TV screen, and it was absolutely mesmeric what I now know was a TV show called Gormenghast. And I think I especially, but I think Jess as well, probably Jess, my twin sister, were enthralled by it. And then we insisted naturally that our parents let us watch the rest of it, <laughs> even though in retrospect, possibly a bit of it was <laughs> inappropriate. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's when I remember. I remember seeing him on the screen and he had such lush hair. <laughs> Shoulder, shoulder length, lush hair, very silky. <laughs> it's interesting because so, so I'd never heard of Gormengas until we were speaking about it before. And so I YouTubed him. He didn't strike me to be at his best <laughs> in terms of appearance. It wasn't like, it didn't seem, I was like, oh, that makes sense to me. It seemed like a, a proto John from Reese Myers who hadn't quite reached his potential yet. And so this is from the Melvin Peake novel. Yeah. His face was pale like clay. And so, <laughs> <laughs> so what about the clay face? <laughs> John Van Rees Myers. Okay, okay. So, so, I mean, I've got, I've got, I've got, I can go on, on more. We've got, <laughs> so his face was pale like clay and save his eyes, mask-like. These eyes were set very close together and were, <laughs> and were small, dark red, and of startling concentration. <laughs> it's 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 not a standard description of what like a first crush image. Okay. So what was it about John Rhys Myers in that role? I think we need to take a moment to distance the novel from the TV mm. production because actually in the TV we all if you know who John Rhys Myers is you'll know that he's a honey particularly pre. 35. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I did I did see a review in which they said that he was too good looking to play that character. Yeah, exactly. So he, he was a very good looking person. But he was quite, I'll give you that, he was quite pallid. I think possibly at the tender age of, let's go with seven. Yeah, seven would make sense. So it was like 2000 that it came out. Yeah, okay, exactly. Seven, there we go. Perfect. 10 out of 10 to me. Um, at the tender age of seven, I'm not sure I had enough <laughs> relevant sort of cultural knowledge to know that like, being pallid was a bad thing. <laughs> I know it sounds like a fundamental thing, doesn't it? Knowing mm -hmm. that, but I don't remember looking at him and thinking he was. So I think 
I think what he does have, it kind of in line with being pallid, is that sort of tortured soul aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's a, a very visual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it's as far as I could tell, quite a highbrow. <laughs> I mean, certainly like a BBC production, but it wasn't the sort of thing I was watching when I was seven. I think so. I think it probably spoke to my sensibilities in terms of it being quite magical. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I remember about it. And it was, you know, in the same way that I don't know, maybe you have with other fantasy things, if you're into Lord of the Rings or something like that, possibly Harry Potter. It's just this sort of vast, enchanting world that you don't really, you don't, the likes of which you don't really encounter elsewhere. That's that's the beauty of fantasy, really, isn't it? And it was, it was super, super interesting. I think also one of the things that kind of reeled me in was that they had... One of so two of the characters are these slightly creepy twins who are part of the royal family, and they sit in this room, um, and I don't think they leave it. And I can't remember why they don't leave. I don't know whether it's that they're forbidden to, or whether they just choose not to. But because like being a twin, it was kind of there was something uncanny about it because it was familiar, and yeah, and everyone's a narcissist, aren't they? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's nice seeing a representation of yourself on screen. Mm-hmm. So I've been watching clips of Gormagas today, and. The special effects are—it's interesting because I can't—I'm not quite sure in terms of with a TV budget from the year 2000. They seem really impressive, mm. but they never seem realistic. So it's a bit when John Fury Myers is clambering over the city, and it doesn't look real. But I think that adds to it because it feels yeah. more magical. Like I could see how, from like a hazy recollection of it, it would seem more than it would seem yeah. to be dreamlike yes exactly that's exactly what it is it is dreamlike or like you say my my recollection of it is that it was dreamlike um i think actually on the note of special effects i can't remember maybe we've got the dvd and i watched some of the um extra stuff at some point but i do remember there was so did you watch the intro at any point no it was it just sort of pans the the camera seems to pan across the city the the i don't think it really um was necessarily conveyed in the tv production itself but in the book the idea is that gormagas is this vast 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 walled city um it's like i think it's just i think it might just be one big sprawling castle i'm not really sure but the the idea is that it's so vast that you just get lost in the in the corridors and nobody really knows where it ends but yeah the way they they filmed the opening is they i think so they had this mini miniature version of the set um and they um submerged it in water which is is, yeah really really worth looking at because it it, again adds that sense of it being really dreamlike and where does John Rhys Myers' character fit into Gormenghast. What? Who is he? So John Rhys Myers plays a character called Steerpike, and he is a kitchen boy with uh, lofty aspirations. He has his eyes set on becoming very important, and he's quite sort of Machiavellian and calculating in terms of how he wants to get there. So he he starts off in the kitchen. He's I don't I think he might be an orphan, um, has doesn't have any friends or family, and then finds his way into the life of one of the princesses and then kind of inveigles his way into her good graces and sort of starts a relationship with her with a name to I think um, marry her but then the problem is that she's the the next in line to the throne then a baby is born or maybe that that might be the first thing that happens actually anyway but the point is he this this young baby Titus gets in the way of Jonathan Reese Myers Steer Pike's uh, goals to become, I guess, the king of Gormenghast. Um But kind of throughout, he's really he is this torture soul. Because even as a seven year old, you get you get a very good sense of the fact that he is kind of categorically evil. 
and ruthless, but also he's really kind of it's it's almost through his absence of like love in his life nobody's ever i don't think really cared about him and he's very much of this tortured soul figure and you you really want to kind of i don't know there's something about him that you really i i'm personally maybe maybe not everyone feels this way but certainly when i was watching it there is something about you that kind of wants to go and i don't know like tell him that he's okay and he doesn't need to be a nasty nasty person yeah it's a typical tortured soul thing yeah. Probably speaks volumes about me as a seven-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an interview with John Rhys Myers in which he talks about how Steel Pike is someone who wants to love but can't give love. So yeah, that links into what you're saying about him being a tortured soul. I'm interested about how a seven-year-old looks towards someone who is so in- unable to give love. Is that something that you see as? I don't know. Is that is that enticing? Is that because I feel like that would that would push me away. I would feel that's very cold for you to find that is to be a crush is quite interesting. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's probably initially that I mean, we're getting deep now. But you know, my household has always been really happy. My mum's always been super supportive and loving. And I think that even as a, I think because as a woman you're socialised to be maternal, even from a very young age. I think there's an extent to which you can, as a young child see somebody unhappy on the television and really try and sympathise with them. I also think Jonathan Rhys Myers did a superb job of conveying that vulnerability. It was quite a sort of, I think it wasn't an easy thing to do, but it's almost like his his actions throughout are consistent with the sort of inability to accept love um, and being quite calculated. But his the way the way it's portrayed kind of by John Rhys Myers, it's like, it just oozes a sense of vulnerability. And, and yeah, I guess, he, I don't know. I don't know whether it's, because, it, you know, in that interview, it talks about him, you know, having had lots of traumatic experiences and maybe there's an extent to which his sort of development as a person is stunted. And I don't know whether there's a, an, an ability to empathise with him on that level as a sort of a child, because a lot of the way he behaves is really childlike and impulsive, not impulsive, that's the wrong word, but kind of very selfish, I guess. So I've got a quote from Rob Maslin from the University of Glasgow, who says that Fuchsia, I think, is the... Fuchsia, yeah. Fuchsia. That, that's how they pronounce it on the programme. I've not read the book, yeah. Uh, okay. So, who found herself drawn to Steerpike by his peerless mimicry of the stuff of her dreams, action, romance, and anarchic comedy, as well as passion. So essentially he's taking advantage of her by putting on a performance mm. of the things that she likes. By that, he doesn't come across as a nice person, mm. someone who would manipulate someone like that. Is that was that something that was enticing that he was had this control over people or was is that something that you took against? Um I think it's it's again like there's kind of two angles to it in that he um he's so compelling at least to a 7-year-old he's so compelling that um you're kind of and I you know not everyone but often as a young woman you cast yourself in the the opposite role to him so you kind of identify with Fuchsia and he is really compelling so there's an extent to which you're taken in in the same way that she is but also it is um this is where it reflects less well on me it is fascinating to see the way he operates and there's a there's a degree of intelligence behind it and kind of I think just in terms of it being so different as well like it's not the way 
at least it's not the way you see most people operate, definitely not as a seven-year-old. There's something really mysterious and enticing about it, I think, to see somebody be that calculating and manipulative. And again, it just, it all feeds into that idea of him being, you know, you sort of think, oh, why are you trying to rationalise yourself? Why is he behaving that way? It's because he, you know, he just needs to be shown, like, real love and then he'll be okay because, you know, <laughs> he's had a shit life, but that doesn't mean it can't be great. <laughs> It's interesting. So I've got a, from the Variety review from the time, um, Laura Freeze said that Reese Myers is so dashingly good looking, he could easily become the next Leonardo DiCaprio. But the part of malevolent steerpike is not the role that's going to win over a young female audience. Well, she was wrong, <laughs> evidently. Um... Because it, it's, so also I've learned today that um, Gormenghast wasn't a success in the UK at the mm. time of release. And it was considered to be a bit of a flop. And there were these articles determining why that was the case and comparing it to other costume dramas. And the one that keeps coming up is um, Pride and Prejudice from 95 with Colin Firth. Mm. And that character is one who people do look back to as being like a standard crush. The scene where he gets out of the lake yes. is famous. <laughs> Pivotal. <laughs> why, is, why is that Colin Firth character held up in such regard while steerpipe from, from Gormenghast isn't and I hadn't even heard of him before today yeah I think it's maybe because we are all innately selfish and I think we look for in partners we look for ways that they can validate us so Colin Firth seems to be a bit of a dick initially and then it comes about that he isn't and he's actually a really wonderful person and if you cast yourself alongside him there's an extent to which you see yourself as his partner and you see that you'd be happy and that he would validate you because he's caring and he's loving and he's etc 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 um boring <laughs> <laughs> um, this is why Stiv, like it's infinitely better than that i think he is i don't know i just think he's a bit different and i think it depends what kind of person you are if you look at situations and you there's always this sort of i don't know where it's come from but this sense that you can fix your partner which is really unhealthy, obviously, but there's something quite romantic about it, which I think is kind of where Steerpike comes in. Because I was never watching it thinking, oh, I'd love to live alongside him with him being a dick and manipulating me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I was just thinking, you know, it, it, there was always, I don't know why, and maybe this is something I read into it incorrectly as a seven-year-old, there's always a sense that he was going to, at some point, come right and sort out his problems and find a way to be happy, uh, obviously. For those of you who haven't watched it, spoiler alert, um, that didn't happen. <laughs> when was the last time you think you watched Gormenghast? I remember when we must have been about 15, I convinced my dad to buy it on DVD and he berated me for a while because he was <laughs> fairly sure that I was never going to watch it. Obviously I did. There's, I think it's six hours in total, start to finish. And I watched it then, start to finish. And then I've kind of probably since then, so God, nearly 10 years ago, I've... Um, dipped in and I probably watched two episodes um in their entirety uh separately since then but whenever I get drunk and I'm with somebody who hasn't watched Gormenghast <laughs> and things are getting intimate <laughs> crank open my uh laptop and make them watch one of the YouTube videos which are always quite short thankfully <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking for YouTube clips today and mm. there are quite a few on online but I don't know, there weren't any that struck me as being, this would be a scene that I remember. There yeah. weren't many crush moments. There's one where um, Fuchsia falls off a cliff, I think. <laughs> and 
John Fabrice Myers runs to her and he's checking that she's okay and he um, rips off his shirt to turn it into a bandage <laughs> to tie up her leg. And that was a moment where I feel like that I could see being like carved into my memory forever. But apart from that, it, he didn't have any overt, I don't know, sexual scenes, I guess. Like, what, what are the moments that are in your brain? Um, so I think probably... So it's quite subtle, his sexuality. It's in, like, it's a sort of... A f- sexual frustration which i think is quite palpable um but yeah there's nothing kind of overtly sexual at any point as far as i recall it is i think so it's just it's that really kind of charged interlude that's between him meeting future and then ultimately nothing ever really happening but it's it's the potential it's all the potential there for something to happen it never does but kind of that you know the act itself once you, con- you cement it in 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 the the program, all the capacity for imagination is gone because you've you've put it down and left it there. Whereas when it's you know when it's the, it's just the potential. There's you know your imagination can go wild. Mm-hmm. Not that I was imagining things as a six seven year old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wanted to come to the the Tudors later, but would you say that by that the Tudors, which is far more explicit with John Fabrice Myers having lots of sex scenes yeah. lots of over there's i was one watching one earlier where he gets scratched on his back and you see his, his cut yeah. form on the back it's um intense yes does that lessen the experience would you find gormenghast is actually more riveting than tudors which is the complete other side yes i think so i think it's worth mentioning here that in the tudors he has a bald head <laughs> <laughs> He's, a, he's not bold he's got a shaved head. he's got it's, a short hair it's bold it's practically bold <laughs> We're and so he doesn't have that. the long flowing locks exactly. of Gormenghast. We're not at home to that. We love the long flowing locks of Steerpike. Um, yes, I do think so. I think so. I think they serve different purposes. I think there's a lot of visual stimulation in the Tudors. And that kind of, I think that, yeah, there's infinitely more mystery and potential when nothing is actually explicitly stated. And I think that makes it more compelling. I think it holds your attention longer as well. And, it, you know, it stays with you after you've watched it. I mean, you're definitely not alone in people finding um, Steerpike attractive, or especially... <laughs> Thank Steer- you. <laughs> well, because, so on, on YouTube today, when I was trying to find clips from the, the series, the main clips that I found were fan videos of clips of Steerpike and Fuchsia cut together with music. I had one with like, cello metal, and it's very sort of emotional, over-the-top kind of cuts-to-you music, or one sort of like love ballads. So there's... Clearly something about that relationship which has resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. And John Fabrice Myers, interestingly, through most of the films I was looking at, had those similar sort of videos Mm. made about him. So he does seem to have the attraction of this kind of people who feel so compelled by him that they'd want to make a video about him, like a declaration of affection. Mm. It's interesting how he has that sort of ability. I think, yeah, I think he, um, with with regards to like Steer Park and Fuchsia, like it's that thing about unfulfilled love, isn't it? Even though it's, I think it is requited, it's not fulfilled. Which actually, as a seven-year-old, I think because you're already absorbing these cultural cues around like chastity and that kind of thing as a woman, um, so actually not seeing any sex, I think, made it easier to fancy him mm-hmm. because you're not conflicted around that, like, oh, that's dirty, you know, because it wasn't really ever consummated. The videos when I was watching, the thing that they reminded me of was twilight fan videos they said mm. that was the comparison that i sort of had in terms mm. of the music and the way they were put together 
and it feels like Robert Pattinson's character perhaps has comparisons mm. with Stonepite in the fact that they, they can't consummate. And you've got girls of a similar sort of age appreciating him later. And so it feels like that trope, perhaps in Stonepike, didn't become the cultural touchstone mm. that Twilight did, but there yeah. are elements of it in which it clearly resonates. Yes, exactly. I think exactly that. And I do think as well, there's something about being unattainable, which is really compelling, I think. And I don't know whether that's because we're socialised in a way that makes us... I guess, maybe evolutionarily, someone being unattainable is an indication of them being choosy, and therefore, I think being choosy is a kind of a standpoint from which you... If you're discerning about who you mate with, this is getting quite biological, isn't it? There's an extent to which, you know, your genes are good because you can choose. So... Mm. I don't know whether it's that. Uh, no, he's just very good looking. He's just, he's beautiful. If anyone hasn't seen Jonathan Reese Myers as Steer Pike, if long hair isn't your thing, I highly recommend that you go and find photos of him as the coach in Bend It Like Beckham, because that's the same kind of, he's still very young and he's, it's just an exquisite face. I mean, that does bring us on to Bend It Like Beckham, which was probably, we're talking about touchstones at all, Twilight. Ben Light Beckham, I feel like, is more commonplace for people of our age to talk about Jonathan mm. Rees-Myers. That's when most people know him. Yeah, I think that was probably like his breakout performance, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was universally more acceptable because it didn't involve long hair and strange <laughs> magical lands. Um. <laughs> so it's infinitely less sexy by the fact that he doesn't have the long hair or the magical lands. Yeah, but he again, he was quite compelling. I think he's very good at um, smouldering. I'm not really sure... How successful he is as an actor outside of that that type of role, I don't know. Maybe it was just that I was older, but I don't don't know about you. I didn't feel comp- particularly compelled by his um, portrayal of Henry, Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of shouting, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was he's very good at doing the sort of the sensitive smolder. So I think he was yeah he was really good at that. Just in terms of his beautiful, it's just he is sort of I think he's classically beautiful. Like put that face on a man on a woman, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like from his filmography, Bender like Beckham is a bit of a departure in that it, he, as you say, he is really sensitive in it. Mm. But I feel like in the other films in which he's sensitive, it's kind of a ploy. He's pretending to be sensitive in order to get what he wants. Yeah. While Bender like Beckham, it seems like he he is that person. Mm. And you have these sort of central scenes of him, um, what's her name? Uh, Jess, the protagonist. He's yeah. got her, him rubbing her feet when she's hurt. Yeah. Or when they had their final kiss at the end. There's a lot of nose rubbing. Mm-hmm. Like it's not it's not the Tudors. It's not like yeah. let's mash our bodies together. It's yeah, it's different. And yeah. I think in terms of crushes, maybe that's why it works. Yeah, maybe. I think although I don't I don't feel qualified to comment on this, because what I will tell you now, don't tell don't tell a mutual friend of ours who because <laughs> She thinks I just like him for Bend It Like Beckham. I watched Bend It Like Beckham seeing Steer Pike. Um, <laughs> so, you, so you were perceiving him as being calculating yeah. and manipulative. <laughs> well, but the lines the lines between, if you cast yourself in the future role, the lines between the two blur. Mm-hmm. Because are you completely taken... No, you're not completely taken in by it, but you're sort of, to an extent you're taken in by it, but also you see, the, you see both sides. And I think because he was so sort of... He was so sensitive... To an almost saccharine degree, in Bend It Like Beckham, mm-hmm. it's hard to take it as 
genuine because that's not behavior you see replicated anywhere else in the real world nobody like rubs it knows it's a bit revolting isn't it so i think there was and he's he's always he is very sensitive in like beckham but he's quite sanguine as well so i think he um i think there's an and he's he's quite collected he's never a very rarely do you see him in Benedict like Beckham get kind of worked up. He's quite, yeah, he's quite collected, and that that mirrors the the calculated nature of Steerpike. So I think I I think I just carried across. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. And I was just thinking about in terms of him being unattainable. How in Benedict like Beckham you do have this thing of him being the coach and then being the mm. players. Yeah, and there is that there's a power imbalance yes. there. Like, and I've, I've not seen Benedict like Beckham in a while. I feel like they overcome it. <laughs> Because she becomes, doesn't she become the famous football player? And so she gets on a, a level which is higher than him. And yeah. so it's, he's no longer able to sort of dictate her fate. Yeah. But there's still that element at the beginning of going after the coach, yeah. going after the guy who's yeah. unattainable. It's exactly, it's that, it's that power dynamic fantasy, isn't it? About like going for your teacher or lecturer or whatever. The, yeah, it's, they, they definitely sort of, they cleanse it, don't they? By shifting her so i think he I'm, I'm don't quote me on this but i think he even gets a job managing a different club as well oh, okay so it's it's not just that she's more successful than he is and going to a different country they displace her to make it okay <laughs> he i think he's also any connect the, the the mutual connection they have is completely dissolved because he goes somewhere else as well mm-hmm. i don't don't quote me on that i might be wrong but I, that's what i remember because i think he was or maybe he i don't know but either way yeah you're right they completely they cleanse it and make it um hygienic for the purposes of public consumption so as not to <laughs> rock the boat yes yeah, so you got the scene in Benny like beckham when jess hurts her foot after she's running and mm. she has to come to the floor and jonathan reese myers massages her foot and you have this very sensual removal of the sock and lots of close-ups on her foot and him touching her and so it's much more on the central side as opposed to the tudors mm. How did you enjoy that scene? No, I didn't. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a degree to which, like, watching somebody you fancy be sensitive and sensual is always going to be a good thing. But also, I remember watching it and just thinking that because you place yourself in the role of Jess and he's so unbearably hot, it would just be too intense. <laughs> Like he's touching your, like your foot would be really sweaty. Yeah, uh, it didn't. It didn't necessarily speak to me. Also, Ari, like him performing, he's the way he acts, either intentionally or unintentionally, gives this sense of him an, an awareness in himself that he's being watched, and I think it's by the camera. I like unintentionally, as opposed to him. Was well, so he saying that he's a vain man? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, but I think you know when you shine a camera at somebody, like like if you take a photo of somebody, if you take a photo of me, like I have a camera face because I just know that there's a camera on me. I can't. I think the sign of a, one of the signs of a really good actor or actress is being able to act in a way that speaks to the camera without letting it know that you know that it's there, which I don't think he does. Um, but because of that, it seems like his. Um, behavior is a performance and therefore calculated so i you know speaking to um you know the sort of the steer pike character it felt like an extend extension of that really mm-hmm. i guess but he definitely lost that by the time he's in the tudors like the sex scene of Amberlynn where he screams out during, <laughs> during orgasm he's clearly he's forgotten the cameras there <laughs> it's it's such a, a mammoth scream it's such an interesting choice for an actor to make because oh. it's clear it's very and a very aggressive oh. sex scene. But... So, yeah, my my theory is at this point in his career, he'd um, 
cast subtlety to the wayside and was just going all out um because yeah it was it was pretty uh present that moment wasn't it the oh god it was yeah i don't i mean in defense of what i was saying he did have his eyes closed and it's hard to do that sort of i know you know i'm here thing with your eyes closed <laughs> so it's an, it's an actor's beat he had to teach himself to do his scenes with his eyes shut so he could get in the moment <laughs> but it is it's just it's so intense the thing is it's not it's not even that bit of it the the scream is not even sexy on any level like <laughs> <laughs> no it's animalistic it's, it is. It's, but in it's, a way it's a war cry <laughs> it is it's just yeah it's sort of and there's something almost a bit unhinged about it which and it's it's, it's difficult to find someone who might not be in full possession of their mental capacity have you got anything more to say about Bend Like Beckham or are we done with Bend Like Beckham? We're, uh, we're done with Bend Like Beckham. Oh. Apart from, highly recommend you go and see the scene where he sh- turns up in a white shirt at Jess's door. That... I don't remember that scene. What happens in that scene? <laughs> he just turns up. I can't remember that he's talking to her parents or maybe he's picking her up or something. But um, I think it's towards the end. He just turns up in this white shirt and smoulders. There's lots of stills on it online. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of like... I think that's his peak in Bend Like Beckham. Mm-hmm. That's where he's hottest. <laughs> Looking at his filmography, the next sort of big thing that I've noticed is Match Point. Yeah. With Scott Johansson. And I don't recall watching that at the time. It came out in 2005. Mm. But I feel like this is him perhaps returning to Steer Park as being someone who is more manipulative. Yeah. Because he starts out and he's very seductive and he's much more aggressive in mm. his seduction than the characters in Bender Like Beckham. Yeah. And from that, it seems like this is what leads to Henry VIII being the ultimate kind of yes. version of that. Yeah. Do you see this as being a good move for Jonathan Rhys Myers as a crush figure, or is this him diverting away from Steerpike too much? I think it's diverting away from Steerpike because there's an extent to which it all the action of that film all pans out obviously in like the real world in inverted commas it's not a fantasy world and i think when you transplant that manipulative behavior to the real world it's it becomes kind of it's not something you can get on board with anymore i think so i i did watch it or at least watch part of it um and i think when you yeah there's and there's something i don't know whether it was in the in the plot but there's something bizarrely there's a lot more hope in gormenghast mm-hmm. with this it's sort of you know he's just manipulating her and um i remember there's a scene where i think he was a, they were in her bedroom or something he was a bit of a dick about something i can't really or maybe he disappeared i don't know but either way i remember just thinking while i find him as a person still very compelling this character don't get on board with just because um i don't maybe maybe it's that you you know 2005 i'd have been what 12 maybe you've grown up a bit and you sort of the tortured soul is less appealing but it, I, maybe that's it maybe he's less of a tortured soul in that i don't know mm. um yeah i would say so i think like he does seem like someone who is aware of what he's doing and yeah. he's he's competent and he doesn't he take a shotgun to go and kill a woman that he's got pregnant i think that's yes i think yeah maybe so, that's, i mean that's, that's talking about him being an arsehole yeah so i mean that's probably a tad more than being an arsehole <laughs> taking a shotgun to a pregnant woman but he he, t- he goes over a line in that, as you say, because it's more realistic. Yeah. Like, perhaps if you change it to him having a bow and arrow, even just saying that out loud, it feels more... Romantic. Yeah. <laughs> as opposed to taking a shotgun yeah. to someone in London. Yeah. It just... There's something a bit clinical. I think when you're more whimsical about things, and also, so if it's taking place in a fantasy land, and also 
if there's a sort of tortured soul aspect to it. There's space. I think what's appealing about the tortured soul is that if they demonstrate vulnerability, which they do in some degree, there's a, there's there is space for you to sort of imagine negotiating the way them them around to a better way of life. Whereas if they're just a cold, hard psychopath, mm. there's kind of there's you're like, okay, well that's you know you done then you're that's who you are. I've got no interest in hanging out. You're categorically a bad person. Mm. Not interested. I think that leads quite nicely onto the Tudors in the sense of. We're talking about fictional worlds. And while that's based, there was a Henry VIII, these sort of things happen in inverted commas. Yeah. I mean, the Wikipedia page, most of it is just the inconsistencies between what actually happened <laughs> in the Tudor series, which a lot of the critics seem to be upset about. It's, it, it felt to me that that was very much evident just from the... From the fact that even John Finley Smiles was cast yeah, as Henry VIII. I know, I know. What were they expecting? Like, the most common image of Henry VIII is him towards the end of his life, the big fat man, mm. not beautiful John Finley Smiles. <laughs> And so you have a character who is aggressive and has a lot of power mm. and especially over the, the wives and how he can just cast them aside whenever he wants. But maybe you have this disconnect because it's set in, mm. because it's yeah. set in the past. Yes. And that allows you to accept the character traits yeah. what you wouldn't in contemporary setting. Yes. I think that's, I think that's a very... Valid point. I think, yeah, both in terms of it being Tudor and also not actual Tudor, just sort of a strange abstraction of what people want to see of the Tudor times. And you sort of, you make allowances for the context as well, don't you? So like, you know, that was kind of how it was back Mm -hmm. in the olden days. You know, women were property. um, And I actually think my, so my favourite character in the Tudors is actually Anne Boleyn. And I think she redeems a lot of it because he's, he's as a character, fairly one-dimensional. They give him kind of a sort of vague nods towards having depth, but it's mainly him just occasionally looking a bit remorseful. Um, whereas she is, she's a really, really interesting character in that she is quite obviously quite intelligent and thoughtful and but vulnerable at the same time and calculating so she, she kind of matches his vulnerability his, his calculating and uh his cold-blooded nature but then she, you see a lot of her vulnerability as well and kind of there's so much more at stake for her because you know as ultimately ends up she loses her head but yeah no i do think i do think you the abstraction of context does lend itself to uh, finding him more attractive and I think as well so in terms of we were talking about earlier in terms of the place of sex in these kind of things in the same way that eating a burger is more instantly satisfying than eating your broccoli um, seeing quite charged sex scenes on TV it's like it's it sort of it's more immediate and I think that's why it was really successful and he was really successful in it because it it serves you don't, I don't think it stays with you I don't maybe um, people would disagree with me but I don't think it stays with you I don't I don't not that I sit and fantasize about anything on the television but I don't <laughs> I don't sort of sit there and think wow yeah the Tudors that sex scene rawr. <laughs> it's not something I do because it happened and in the in the moment it's really intense and it's really hot but then you know you move past it it's done like there's no scope for imagination. You don't, there's no potential. There's no, yeah. So I don't know. Mm. I think, yeah. This might be a stretch, but in my head, just watching it today, it feels like the Tudors was almost like a precursor to Game of Thrones. Yes. In the yeah. sense of you have got this Tudor setting or you've got this magical setting. And through that, you're able to have explicit sex scenes that feel, I don't, I can't think exactly how they feel. I guess they're, because as you say, the 
both the Tudors and Game of Thrones have some serious like gender mm. issues, particularly in the, the the way that the sex scenes are shot. Mm. Yeah, it's. I, I definitely think it's. It was uh, representative of this emerging trend to show explicit sex on TV because traditionally costume dramas don't because they are sort of lots of them based on uh, novels from I don't know the Victorian era or whatever, and therefore you know there's not any. It's it's all sort of you know implied or. Mm-hmm. Um, hinted at rather than being explicit and i do think we've definitely as a culture as a society we've moved towards this thing about having really explicit sex scenes on tv and a lot of them because like they've always been in films i think my my memory of watching films is always like at some point often the tension is consummated but it tends to be like one and it's like the one thing that happens. And then, mm-hmm. whereas, or, you know, a couple maybe. But in, yeah, in Game of Thrones and in the Tudors, it's sort of systematically all the way through. Sex scene, sex scene, sex scene, sex scene. And I do think we've, it's, we're all sort of, I don't know. I think we're maybe all a bit desensitized to it now. So in order for something to be impactful, be that violence or sex, it has to be done quite gratuitously and it has to be done religiously throughout. Yeah. And as you were saying earlier, it's difficult to recall a moment from a sex scene in the Tudors mm. as being, I don't know, epochal <laughs> <laughs> exactly. in, com- in comparison to the Mr. Darcy scene, which yeah. is just kind of having a bath. Yeah. <laughs> and that And that is... Gone down as like a touchstone for yeah. multiple generations, mm. not John Ruby Myers like <laughs> having his way with a harem. Rogering. <laughs> <laughs> Just not Jonathan Ruby Myers bashing his genitals against oh a wall. Oh, that's exactly what it is. No, exactly. I think um, you're, oh, you're so right about that. I, I hadn't even made the connection, but it is, I, there's so much nuance in Colin emerging from the pond mm-hmm. um I haven't even seen it and yet I've I've I think I've seen a video of that part I don't think I've seen the full thing it's so important in terms of uh period dramas and just general media we we went to a protest the other day protest demonstration for um free sanitary items for girls on paid school lunches because otherwise they miss school and my friends have made a sign saying no more period drama and the pitch they'd used was <laughs> Colin emerging from the pond. Yeah. Um, it is that thing that you say that you don't even have to have seen it to know of it. Yeah. Because uh, I watched the clip today and it, there was a, a moment that I had in my head that, that wasn't actually in the clip. I just sort of invented it. <laughs> and I feel like I'd got it kind of like ma- mangled in with atonement in my head. And it was, but it's so iconic that it's, mm. it's just in the air. Everyone yeah. knows it. It is. I know. Rightly so. But wrongly so, Steerpike didn't make it into the annals of history. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're changing that today. This is People will look back as this being the moment where Steerpike just plummets, not, not plummets, so anyway, ascends, ascends. <laughs> to greatness, fulfills his destiny. So I guess in terms of the sex scenes, in terms of being set in a fantasy world or something as opposed to real life, Matchpoint maybe is able to blur that line a bit when they go to the wheat field because it's, it's so over the top almost like a Mills and Boone novel how does that work for you as a John Trevor Smyers scene it's not the most shining acting moment for <laughs> either of them but what I would say yeah I do think it's it is a, a raging cliche isn't it isn't it having rogering in a in a a uh, wheat field and therefore I think kind of when you can no longer see their faces it's quite compelling because it seems to happen almost in a not quite in a vacuum I've not watched the film recently but it does it's a sort of this random location that removes it in some ways from the rest of the 
the narrative because you're just there in this wheat field, it's raining. Um, and, you know, great body acting from them both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do have John Reese Myers does put his hand on Scotty Hansen's bum in a provocative way, in which it's, yeah. it's very much like straight down, it almost round the bag of the front. It's it's very over... The, it's, not, it's something that I feel like... I remember that moment striking me as being overt in a, mm. in a way that most sex scenes in films of that nature aren't. Like, it's, yes. it's perhaps... I don't know, I'd say that's more titillating than the Tudors stuff. Yes. It's it's more so than just implying, mm. but it's not that, it's not gone too far. It's a yeah. happy medium. I totally agree with you, actually. I think, yeah, it's not, it's not so explicit that like you're seeing, you know, in fact, you don't see any nudity. I think because it's, although it's quite, it's quite active, and it's definitely kind of like, there's no, you can't, explain that away it's definitely a hand on somebody's rear but it's also not i just is getting a bit gross now it's not like direct necessarily not like direct it's sensual Mm -hmm. it's not kind of like someone touching somebody else's genitals it's Mm -hmm. not just cutting to the chase there's there's, there is sort of seduction in it so for the tutors the tagline for the final season was the final seduction so they're clearly playing with (laughs) so i mean it's very much it's not a historical drama in the standard sense it is like pornography (laughs) In but, a word. I mean, that, that's what they, that's what people are coming for. I mean, my grandparents watched it at the time, and they definitely thought they were getting a historical drama. <laughs> <laughs> would often talk to me about how it's very rude and how <laughs> maybe sometimes they go a bit too far with it. And yet they persisted. I mean, it's bizarre that it, it didn't seem to deter them in any way. Interesting. Yeah, it was. It was. It, I guess it did end up being soft porn. The New York Times called it a primitively sensual period drama. Yeah, agree. In the same way that um, Horrible Histories is sort of like a fun comedy version of history. You've got horny histories <laughs> in which they sort of take a oh, vague element uh, of the past and just turn it into erotica. <laughs> I'm going to use that. I'm going to use horny histories now. Such a thing. What's the what's the phrase? Supply and demand. There we go. I'm assuming it's supply and demand. Presumably the... the uh, was it the BBC who made it? I don't know. Presumably they were giving... Actually, I thought it was BBC, but I looked at it today. It's actually Showtime. So it was an American oh. company who made it and the BBC just bought the rights. I think, yeah, I think I thought it was the BBC as well. As an aside, really good theme tune for the tutors. <laughs> yeah, I used to have it on my phone. <laughs> but no, I do think, yeah, yeah, horny histories. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's... Oh, I don't know. This is where it gets quite cynical. I don't know whether it's... Um, supply and demand, pe- giving the people what they want, or trying to shape public consumption. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I find it all. I, I don't. I haven't placed where it specifically fits into the whole capitalist system, but I feel like it's in there somewhere. You know, like call me a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> so um, poor John from Reese's Myers' body has become <laughs> an agent of capitalism. They've sacrificed it at the altar of of uh, capitalism. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, um, I don't, I feel maybe it's something to do with emphasis on people to look a certain way. And they're, therefore, because like, you know, if sex necessitates you looking a certain way, then you pay money to look that way. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I just feel like it's a little bit cynical. Who knows? Who knows? So, John Fabrice Myers acknowledges that he looks nothing like Henry VIII. There's a quote where he says that he's got absolutely no physical attributes in common with Henry VIII. So everything has to be more about his energy, more about power, more about confidence. Are those traits that you want in a John from Reese Myers character? Mm, my gut response to that is no. Given that 
And vulnerability is such a big part of his character as Steerpike. And maybe that's why I didn't find Henry VIII compelling. Maybe it speaks to some people, um, the sort of slightly arrogant and brash, you know, Henry VIII character. But I think realistically, nobody, you wouldn't actively choose that as a partner would you there's no, because there's no nuance to it, it's so one dimensional he's just kind of always shouting always right always impetuous and obstinate it's not it's not interesting i think and that's that's the thing i you know i feel when i watch the tudors or have watched the tudors i'm not engaged by him at all it's not even like i just actively dislike him i just I, yeah i don't ever find myself looking at him maybe it's the lack of <laughs> The lush hair. Maybe it's the, um, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's one di- his one-dimensional character, but I don't at any point feel compelled. Um, whereas, as we touched on, Anne Boleyn is, I think she's infinitely, infinitely more interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it feels like that's the way that Jonathan Rhys Meyer's like, star persona has moved away from mm. the Bendy Light Beckham central types mm. to, because the Tudors were such a defining role for him. Mm. So, since then, he's, he's in a, it's currently in a series called The called Vikings, which I think is more similar to that, where he's like a warrior type, or um, he was in Dracula. I did actually watch a bit of Dracula. Yeah, no. I think having studied it and, like, appreciated the the original text itself, a lot was lost. And it seemed, again, that they were kind of sacrificed. Although, to the defence, they did try and paint him in quite a compassionate light, I think. They tried to give him depth. It just... I th- I th- possibly it was just too far away from the Dracula we all know and love. It became something that it didn't feel like he was Dracula anymore. I think you were. I think you did. I th- I can't remember exactly what happened, but I feel like he was supposed to sympathise with him, and he wasn't a bad person and or a bad creature or whatever. But I think then it becomes something that isn't Dracula. So if you're watching it because you like Dracula, I stuck with it longer than I care to admit <laughs> because because Jonathan Rhys Meyers. I I actually think he wasn't awful in it. I don't think he was remarkable either. I, I mean, I don't really remember that much about it. And I, uh, of course, at this point, he'd lost the, the lush hair of his youth. So I feel that least was wrapping up. So Jonathan Rhys Myers, an important figure when you were seven. Does he still have that impact now? No, it's really sad. And I, I well, no, in that, like, him specifically, no. So I don't follow his work anymore because he's not... Um, although I did see a film about the clash that he was in that was quite good. He did. Your dad recommended that. that to me yesterday. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a good film. But um, largely, no, he's he's not. He doesn't seem to play characters. If I saw a preview of something he was in that looked like he might be returning more to the Steerpike vibe, I would watch it. But I think I've seen enough of him not doing that that I don't really. I'm not inclined to try and seek out stuff he's done in terms of the Steerpike character removed from Jonathan Rhys Myers as a person absolutely always on the lookout for that 10 out of 10 <laughs> <laughs> so you would want to see a new version of yes, Steerpike always well the there's something kind of beautifully I don't know bittersweet because I, I feel they're so closely tied Steerpike and Jonathan Rhys Myers because it was such a formative thing for me and it happened so young that I'm not I would I'd be really sad if there was like another actual Steerpike but like a Steerpike-esque character, absolutely. I think the tortured soul will will always be interesting. If if you're so inclined, I think seeing a, a depiction of somebody who is in crisis and who is behaving in a way that isn't necessarily that nice, but there's room for you to try and, you know, 
if you cast yourself alongside that person's room for you to try and change that, I think that's always going to be really interesting. I mean, that sounds really unhealthy. That's <laughs> 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 something just my thought. <laughs> I feel like I'm not qualified to help you through this. That seems like a good place as any to uh, wrap up. Thanks for coming, Anna. Thank you for having me. And it's I'll, been a delight. I'll uh, see you soon.